As we prepare to read God's holy word, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. Holy Spirit, pour out on us wisdom and understanding. Uh, Being taught by you through your holy and errant and infallible word, our hearts and minds may be opened to receive all that leads to life and holiness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading comes this morning from the gospel according to Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. We are continuing our sermon series through selected miracles of Jesus. So this morning, uh, we are reading the passage of Jesus' healing of the paralytic. So hear now the word of God. It is written. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was home, that is Jesus. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Dearly beloved, can we, can we talk about the guilt of sin this morning? That's what this miracle is really about, isn't it? Sure, the miracle is also revealing to us the power and authority of Jesus to provide physical healing. This is made clear in verse 11 when Jesus instructs the paralyzed man to pick up your bed and go home. And verse 12 tells us, and he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. Everyone there that day could give witness to the reality that Jesus had the authority and power to provide healing from physical affliction. And the scripture preserves this physical healing for us that we too might understand and believe that Jesus has that power and authority. But this physical healing, which is what this paralyzed man had come to Jesus hoping for becomes a secondary matter to the first words Jesus speaks to him. Son, your sins are forgiven. 
Now, if you can try in your mind to imagine this scene, picture it if you can. Imagine what this paralyzed man must have been thinking as his friends carried him to this house where they heard Jesus was. Jesus, the one who had been healing many people of various diseases, as Mark tells us in verse 34 of chapter 1. His mind must have been racing with, with excitement. Would he finally be freed from this affliction that had made his bed a prison to him? Would Jesus, could Jesus provide him healing? It was a healing that he had longed for, and his friends understood this so well that they were willing to go to any length to get him before Jesus. We see this in the passage, right? Finding that this house is so full of people that they are flowing out of the doorway and that Jesus, therefore, is inaccessible, they resort to climbing up onto the roof, carrying their friend with them, and removing a portion of the roof, they lowered their paralyzed friend down in front of Jesus. You have the scene in your mind? But instead of healing the man's physical affliction, verse 8 tells us that Jesus instead tells him that his sins are forgiven. Now, don't you think that must have come, to, come as a shock to the man and his friends? These were not the words that they expected from Jesus, right? Um, Jesus, you do see that his legs don't work, don't you? But they weren't the only ones that were shocked by these words. We can, feel, we can feel in the passage this abrupt shift that occurs at this point in the, in the narrative. All of a sudden, there is a rumbling and a mumbling in the crowd. Who in the world does he think he is? This is outrageous, blasphemous. Only God can forgive sins. The scribes there understand that sin is at its root transgression against God, a violation of his law, an offense of his holiness. Only God can forgive sin. You can't forgive someone of an offense that they committed against me, nor I you. So the scribes immediately began to accuse Jesus of blasphemy because he is claiming the authority of God by telling this man his sins have been forgiven. But Mark tells us Jesus perceived, in their, perceived their thoughts and he calls them out. Why do you question these things in your hearts? And then Jesus asks this curious question. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? And as we wonder why it was that Jesus told the paralyzed man that his sins were forgiven instead of healing his affliction, Jesus' comment here, his question here, sheds some light. And Jesus knows that the man is paralyzed. It had to have been plainly obvious. But what wasn't plainly obvious was his need for spiritual healing, his need for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus knows this need, though. He also knows that there is no obvious way to verify the truth that he has the power and authority to provide forgiveness of sins that he grants the paralyzed man here. 
Just as no one can see this man's spiritual need, no one could see the healing provided. So what Jesus is getting at here with his comments to the scribes is that it is easy to say that someone's sins have been forgiven precisely because there is no way of disproving that Jesus actually has the authority to forgive the man of his sins. But you can disprove one's authority to provide physical healing, can't you? The proof is in the pudding, as they say. So now, turning to the paralytic, Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And this physical healing is immediately validated, verified when the man gets up and walks away. Jesus' word is shown to be deed. You see, Jesus wants us to draw the connection between his authority to physically heal, which has now been seen and verified, and his authority to spiritually heal, which cannot be seen or verified. But what is visible is meant to give validity to what is invisible. But we still must decide for ourselves, does Jesus actually have the authority to forgive sin or not? And this decision is a decision of faith. Jesus, though, is not just demonstrating his authority here and providing us a moment in which we're forced to question who he really is. Is he really God? Does he really have the power and authority to forgive sin? These are central questions to the gospel, but he isn't simply making an example out of this situation. No, there's a a deeper reality here. The paralyzed man, in the end, got exactly what he was seeking. His body was made whole, but he also got so much more than he anticipated. And Jesus is revealing that he doesn't, he's not simply concerned with our physical bodies. He's concerned, rather, with all of who we are as those created in God's image. We are not simply a body. There is more to us than that. The issue is not Simply, our bodies that need healing, but we are broken to the core. The effects of sin run deep, leaving no aspect of our lives untouched. And so once again, as we have already found in other miracles, we find here that the greatest need is not physical, it's spiritual. These physical bodies that we have will not last forever. They will die. It is inevitable. It's a consequence of the fall, but our souls will not die. What happens then when the rot of sin has corrupted our souls? Our bodies need healing and ultimately resurrection, yes. But our souls first need to be regenerated by the Spirit in order that by faith, through faith in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins that he offers us can be received and we can be reconciled to God. And through the forgiveness and reconciliation, we can receive in faith the promise that we will be physically resurrected as Jesus was to live eternally in his kingdom. Otherwise, otherwise we stand guilty before God, condemned in our sin. And we are, to some degree, maybe even to a large degree, aware of this guilt even before our eyes are open to the reality of our miserable state before the Lord. We can sense it, can't we? 
We can sense it, that something is wrong. And this is because God has embedded within every human soul an innate sense of ought. Speaking of the Gentiles, the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Romans, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Paul isn't saying there in Romans that the Gentiles have the law written on their hearts as those who have received the Holy Spirit have the law written on their hearts. Rather, he is speaking of this God-given sense of oughtness. And he says that their consciences give witness to it. So even though they hadn't been given God's law, they didn't explicitly know God's law, they are pricked in their consciences when they do something they ought not to do or fail to do something that they ought to do. And the result is that there is a sense of unease, pain. And we call this pain guilt. It's our conscience bringing to our awareness that we have done or left undone something that has caused offense. And anyone who has any sensibility of conscience has a given sense of what they ought to do and not do unless they have seared their conscience completely numb by sin, hardened their hearts to the deceitfulness of sin, which the Apostle Paul and the writer of Hebrews warn us of. So it's important to note here that our consciences are not infallible. We can sear them. And scripture also indicates that they can be hypersensitive, bringing a sense of guilt when there is no wrong. Our consciences then must always be informed and ruled by scripture. But regardless of whether we feel guilty or not, nevertheless, we are objectively guilty before the Lord as those who have sinned and fall short of his glory. And make no mistake, it is God who has been offended by our wrongdoing. It isn't that we are primarily, have primarily transgressed against and offended our neighbor. It is rather God for every offense against neighbor is at its root in offense against God because it is his law that we have broken. So without Christ, this is our legal standing before God. We are guilty sinners. And it isn't just some who are guilty before God. This is the universal condition. The Apostle Paul tells us that we have all sinned and fall short. All, we all are directly accountable to God and we all individually are going to have to answer for our sin. We are trapped in this reality and we are without excuse. God has given us this inner sense of what we ought to do and not do and he has revealed himself to us if nothing else in creation. And so this guilt must be dealt with. Otherwise, we face the harsh reality of not only our sense of guilt, but of God's wrath. The problem is that we are utterly incapable of dealing with this guilt ourselves. There's absolutely nothing we can do. We can't make ourselves 
no matter how hard we try, righteous enough before God in a way that relieves our guilt and appeases God's wrath. People have tried for centuries to accomplish this. But beloved, thanks be to God. Jesus is revealing here in this miracle that he has come to deal with our guilt. He has come to forgive sin, to provide spiritual healing, and he has the power and authority to do this because he is God come in the flesh. And scripture tells us that Jesus Christ bears our sin, our guilt in his body on the tree that we might be dead to sin and alive to righteousness. God has put forth his own son, the apostle Paul tells us, as a propitiation by his blood. In other words, Jesus comes to live in perfect obedience, to live a guiltless, sinless life on our behalf and to offer up his life for us as a sin-atoning, wrath-appeasing sacrifice. This miracle is pointing to this sacrifice and indeed leading to it by creating this opposition against Jesus we see here from the scribes. If we kept reading, we would see in the beginning of chapter 3 of Mark's gospel that this opposition quickly leads to plotting how to destroy him. And it is by his wounds that we are healed. But, our placing, but by placing our faith in his sacrifice, by not only affirming with our heads, but trusting in the depths of our heart that Jesus is who he says he is, by bringing our sins before the foot of the cross to be healed of them, we are justified. We are set right with God. No longer guilty before God, but given peace with God. This is what Paul tells us in the fifth chapter of Romans. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For, while, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And then Paul says this, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. And this is exactly what the man who had been healed of his paralysis, but also, and more importantly, his guilt of sin does. And Mark isn't as explicit in his gospel about this, but Luke tells us, and immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been laying on, and went home, glorifying God. Yes, he is rejoicing because he has been physically healed by Jesus. But he no doubt got much more than he had bargained for. Perhaps more than he knew he needed or even had dreamed for himself. 
And so not only was he rejoicing over his physical healing, I think much more was he rejoicing and giving glory to God as a result of the healing power of forgiveness that he had experienced. And I don't think that the nature of this man's physical infirmity is entirely unconnected to his spiritual infirmity. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that the man was paralyzed because he was sinful. What I'm saying, though, is that the guilt of sin is the cause for great paralysis in our lives. It prevents us from worshiping and glorifying the Lord as we should. It prevents us from living in the joy of our salvation because it prevents us from experiencing the peace of assurance. And I think this is why Jesus approaches this particular healing in the way that he does. He wants us to make this connection. The guilt of sin has the ability to paralyze our affections, our thought patterns, our habits, our love in service to God. And Jesus knows that the disease that sin is, and he comes that we might be released from its bondage. He comes to bring us out of our guilt and shame and to bring us into the peace of God. So dearly beloved, this miracle calls us then to examine our lives in this regard. Jesus in his sacrificial death has been offered to you by God's grace to save you from standing guilty before God. For those who have placed faith in Jesus Christ, no longer do we have to suffer under the burden of guilt because by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have been washed clean of our sin, brought into union with Christ and clothed in his righteousness. And if you haven't received Christ, I urge you this day, do not delay. Christ is the only means of peace and of joy. He's the only means of salvation. But if you have received Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, this miracle is a reminder that your guilt is removed. Gone. No more. This is a great benefit of Christ for us. We should hear Christ say to us, Son, your sins are forgiven. And this should be for us a great comfort and encouragement. As one Christian author writes, let God's forgiveness, that which no money can buy, no good deeds can earn, no suffering can steal, breathe heaven's air into your lungs. Satan is robbed of his accusations against you. You have been adopted into Christ's family. You are perfect in God's eyes, in union with his son. Let this news bear you up on the wings like eagles. Though your health, happiness, and legs be anchored to the floor, Christ has given us more than new legs. He has given us a new heart, a new hope, and a new future. By giving himself bloodied on the cross for us, he shall not spare us anything for our ultimate good. And it isn't that we don't still wrestle with sin in the flesh and so still occasionally experience the prick of guilt in our lives as our conscience bears witness at times that our lives are out of sync with who we are in Christ. But it means that we don't have to live under its weight any longer. 
As those who are in Christ, no longer do we stand condemned. And we should not be living as those who are condemned. This means that the feeling of guilt should never, never paralyze a believer in Christ because forgiveness is ours in Christ. It's God's free gift. Any sense of guilt we have should immediately be banished as we take it to the foot of the cross, as we preach the gospel to ourselves, as we come before the Lord in the act of true confession and repentance. For God promises that he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we do this. So can I ask you, believers in Christ, are you living? Are you living with any sense of ongoing guilt? If so, then you need to seek to discover the cause of this guilt. Is it sin which has not been repented of? Is the Holy Spirit causing conviction of sin that you might come out of it and return to the Lord in order to enjoy relationship with God? Or is it the evil one who wants nothing more than for you to feel condemned? To abandon the assurance that the gospel offers and the peace which is yours in Christ by way of your justification by grace through faith. The evil one wants you to abandon this assurance because you will then either resign yourself to being defeated or you will start looking for ways to appease your own guilt. And when this happens, the evil one has succeeded in stealing your joy, your strength, and your comfort. Either way, I beg you, dearly beloved believers, don't let guilt paralyze your life. But there's another important, very important lesson for us in this miracle related to guilt, and it is this. As those who place our faith in Jesus Christ, who understand him to be the only way our guilt is dealt with fully and finally, we have a responsibility to bring others to find the healing of forgiveness. This miracle is one of the most beautiful of all the gospel to me. It is beautiful primarily because of who Jesus is shown to be, the preciousness of the forgiveness that is offered by him and through him. But it's also beautiful because it presents to us the love of friends who will stop at nothing, who will let no obstacle get in the way of bringing a neighbor, a loved one, a brother to Christ for healing. They obviously didn't know the extent of the healing that Jesus would provide, but they literally carried this man to Jesus. They climbed with him up on the roof. They ripped it off, lowered him down in order to get him before the Lord. How much more, how much more than knowing the fullness of who Jesus is and the healing that he provides should we be doing the same thing for those around? And it seems to me that we are living in a cultural moment when there is a heavy sense of guilt in the world around us. But we are, what we are witnessing is that people have no idea what to do with their guilt. Even as they reject the idea of moral absolutes and a God from whose character moral absolutes come, there is at least, it seems to me, a desperate attempt to find relief from their guilt. And why wouldn't the world be seeking this relief? We are always trying to evade and escape from pain. But notice how people seek to relieve the burden of guilt. It's several ways. Intellectual trickery is one. This is what we're doing when we think 
we can think our way out of guilt. So we tell ourselves things like this, that our concept of virtue was actually unrealistic. In other words, the reason I have a sense of guilt is because I was expecting too much of myself. My standards were too high. So I can just lower my standards, and in doing so, I can lower my sense of guilt. It's pretty clever. Just convince yourself that the cause of your guilt is an unrealistic expectation, and the guilt simply melts away. It doesn't, though, does it? Along those same lines, another way we might try to think our way out of guilt is to convince ourselves that traditional moral values are outdated. We see this going on. This is what the sexual revolution has done. Monogamous marriages are so 20th century. Not having, only having one sexual partner for life is not only unrealistic, it is restrictive. It doesn't acknowledge the natural human sexual drive and need for sexual intimacy. These are needs that should be expressed. It's unhealthy, in fact, to repress them. And now you don't have to feel guilty about being sexually promiscuous. You are actually just being healthy. Just like when you drink proper amounts of water and eat well, and exercise. All of a sudden, what was once considered vice is thought to be virtue and vice versa. But again, it simply doesn't work to provide alleviation from guilt. It's also given things, rise to things like personal pampering. Not just caring appropriately for yourself, but taking it to the point of sinful self-indulgence. We deserve to have self-care is what we tell ourselves. I have some homework for you. Sometime in the next week, type into your internet search engine the words guilt and self-care and see what you get. Google found for me 213 million sites in half a second. With titles like five ways to drop the guilt for putting yourself first. I'm not making it up. And it's time to stop feeling guilty about focusing on self-care. Yes, please enlighten me on how I can be completely self-absorbed and feel wonderful about myself in the process. It doesn't work. The head might be easily persuaded, but the heart is not so easily changed. Even Disney knows that truth. Intellectual trickery doesn't work, but the world has some other tactics it uses to relieve the sense of guilt. Some turn to trying to drown guilt by way of substance abuse. Drugs and alcohol have a certain effectiveness in numbing the pain of guilt. And I don't think it is any coincidence that opioid abuse had reached epidemic proportions in this country before laws were just recently passed, limiting access to these powerful drugs. Even that doesn't work, though. More and more chemicals are always needed to kill the pain. A more popular approach to seeking to assuage guilt that we have been seeing sweeping the country in recent years is what interestingly takes a religious form. It's the religion of secularism, humanism, self-righteous striving to make the world a better place. Ask yourselves, why is it that we are seeing so much virtue signaling and social justice crusading going on right now? Is it that we have all of a sudden become an incredibly unjust society? 
Is that what's going on? Is it that we are just now awakening to the reality that there are outrageous offenses in our culture which require swift and drastic correction? Or is it that we are looking desperately for ways to seek to appease our guilt by our righteous deeds? If we could just do enough to overcome our sense of guilt. And when that doesn't work, maybe we can begin to confess offenses that we're not, we're not really responsible for and make reparations for them, or at least force others to. Or we can shout at the top of our lungs and try to force social positions on others that would put us all on the right side of history. And all this is done in a manner that's so angry and hateful, which reveals it's not the fruit of righteousness, but the fruit of sin. And it doesn't help. It only deepens the guilt because God is not impressed with our self-righteousness. It's the same thing that people have been trying to do for centuries, how every other religion besides Christianity attempts to deal with guilt. If you're a Buddhist, get rid of yourself. If you're Hindu, offer enough sacrifices to the gods. If you're Muslim, be devout in your observance to prayer and other spiritual devotions. If you're Jewish, keep the law. Simply doesn't work. But I believe that God is up to something right now. I believe that he is creating by his Holy Spirit, whose scripture tells us, comes and convicts the world of its sin. He is causing this enormous sense of guilt around us. And by doing so, the harvest fields have become ripe for revival. As people seek relief and healing. Therefore, now more than ever, dearly beloved, those of us who know the peace of God in Christ Jesus need to hold out the great physician to the world around us. There is no one else who can heal us. There is no one else in whom or through whom our guilt meets its end and is replaced with perfect peace. So can we be like the four friends? Bearing up the weight of the paralyzed man, finding any way possible to get him before Jesus. And let's pray. Let's pray that the Holy Spirit comes in power, not only to bring conviction of sin, but also to soften hearts, to give a true awareness of self and so make people ready for healing. Make them honest before God that we are guilty before him and in need of his grace. Dearly beloved, let us be in prayer. Let us be in prayer for revival to break out. And may people who are looking for the relief of guilt find it in Jesus Christ. And to God be all the glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the witness of your word, which gives witness to the power and authority of Jesus Christ. To not only heal physical affliction, Lord, but more importantly, to heal our souls. To provide the healing of forgiveness of sins. And Lord, I pray that we would run to the foot of your cross. That we would bring our sins there. Lord, that we would confess. That we can't deal with our guilt that we would humble ourselves before you and allow you to wash us clean. Help us to do that. Help us to do that this day and help us 
in the days to come to give witness in our lives to those around us of the healing power of Jesus Christ. And by any means necessary to bring them before Jesus for healing themselves. For we pray this in his name. Amen. Let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Believer, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father. 